If you would, turn in your Bible this morning to Lamentations chapter 3. Ellie Bear, would you bring me that green Yeti? Water, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, sugar. Before we begin today, I just want to take time. Dallas uh, shared with me right before uh, service this morning that his daughter Dixie was taken uh, to Shannon for an emergency appendectomy. And so let's pray, as this is probably the hour, uh, roughly, that she's going into surgery. So let's pray for her. Father God, we come into your presence this morning so thankful for your faithfulness, thankful that nothing befalls us but that which you intend for our growth and for your glory. And in this hour, Father, we certainly lift before you Dixie and the surgery that she's about to undergo. We're so thankful that we live in a day and a time and an hour where Dixie will be able to receive a surgery that will alleviate this problem. What kind providence it is that that's a reality, and we don't take that lightly. We're so thankful. And Father, we know that that surgery is not a procedure that's without risk, and so we ask that you would give the doctor wisdom and skill, and Father, that he would um, perform the operation successfully, but we know ultimately if that comes to pass that it's your healing, not his. And so we will give you the glory for it. And Father, we ask that you would give strength and comfort and, uh, Father, just uh, peace during this time. And Father, more than anything, we pray that your presence would be felt and that um, Dixie would draw closer to you uh, because of this uh, reality and that she would sense your goodness during this time. Father, we're also mindful at this moment that Rylan, young man that's recently joined our church, is not here this morning but is traveling, and so we pray that you would give him traveling mercies. Um, Father, we're thankful for him and pray that you would bless him uh, there where he is. In Christ's name, amen. Lamentations chapter 3 this morning. Uh, many of us know the words to the favorite of the Davidic psalm, Psalm 23, but among the most impactful of the words found therein come from verse 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Beloved, every good shepherd knows the necessity of the tools for leading his flock. That of a staff to draw that which is wounded near and the rod to correct and rebuke. We live in a time, and I would argue probably every time, but we feel it, I think, in a unique way even today, that the rod is somewhat unwelcome. Uh, when we come to deal with suffering in the life of a believer, uh, there is an entire train of thought that would leave us to not consider what God is doing uh, in His correction, in His chastisement of our sin. But we know from Lamentations thus far that the reality of what's happening in the life of Israel, in the life of the nation, the people of God, is that the people of God have refused the Word of God and rather they have accepted and chased after false prophets. They have pivoted from the goodness of the grace of God through the words that He has inspired, and they have turned to the foolishness of fallen men. Now God had warned the nation time and time again that He would chasten them, that He would rebuke them, that He would cause famine to come upon them, that He would in fact send delusion and yet they persisted, not in following Him and not in turning from their sin, but in turning, in fact, to the world. And what followed was the absolute destruction of the nation. What we have, then, in these verse, uh, verses 1-18, through 18, is a jarring cry, uh, an announcement of the consequences that have befallen the people of God. And again, friends, the world doesn't understand a God that doesn't work for them in limiting their pain. 
Now, all throughout the world this morning, there are false idols that are worshipped, and they are worshipped in the vanity of the fallen mind of humanity in a way that is to construct some system whereby these gods will spare the individual who is doing the idolizing, or in their mind, worshipping, from any suffering in their life. Good gods in the human construct don't allow us to go through suffering. They must deliver us and keep us from it. Otherwise, we can judge them as not being adequate in the fallen mind. And what's sad is not that the fallen human mind, devoid of the grace of God, comes to that conclusion. What is sad is that there are many churches this morning who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who claim to have been radically changed by the grace of God, and yet they vomit forth the same kind of thinking. He would never allow you to suffer. A loving God would not do that. If God really loves you, it's not that He would want this for you. But, beloved, lamentation stands to remind us of the horrific reality of the holy, righteous, and just rod of God's wrath. That He, in fact, does bring chastisement. And what we find this morning in these 18 verses of chapter 3 is something written seemingly in first person. And so the question we have to ask as we're coming to these verses this morning is, who is in fact speaking here? Is this every individual in the nation being given voice? And I don't think that's necessarily what is is happening here or is it Jeremiah and the answer to that I believe is no he's not merely speaking about his personal experience although I think it's interwoven what he is really doing in these verse 18 verses is wrestling with the sufferings of an entire nation that has run from the words of God and so with that in mind if you would do honor to the reading of God's word And stand. These verses written under the inspiration of Almighty God, the one that heals us and brings us low. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me He turns His hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I cry, uh, call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all of the people, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has satted me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. These are God's words to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning so thankful for these words and thankful for what it is to be reminded that you chasten every son that you have received and father that you will not let your people depart from your word for therein we find life and that abundantly might we be reminded today of the foolishness of walking away from your word and seeking to live on the thoughts of this fallen world might we be chastened in our own hearts to treasure what it is you have spoken in christ's name amen 
You may be seated. What we find here, and can I just side note to this, as I continually read through Lamentations, one of the things that I've been given more of is a better understanding of the doctrine of inspiration. I believe in a verbal plenary inspiration that these are God's words, that He has breathed them out to the original authors, uh, but what we find in Lamentations is not di- just a dictation method where God's saying, hey, say this, but rather God at providentially allowed Jeremiah and the nation to go through all of their sufferings. And the New Testament tells us this, that everything they went through was for our benefit. And in that suffering that, that Jeremiah is, is, is experiencing and the nation is experiencing, what comes out of Jeremiah is in fact part of how God inspires His Word. And so let that be, I just think, at the forefront of our minds when we're talking about a nation that has left the Word of God. Friends, let us not be those people and let us be thankful That in all of the suffering that Jeremiah and the nation, the people of God are going through, part of it is for our benefit that God doesn't just give us a one, two, three checklist, but rather allows others to experience suffering in a way that His Word issues forth and we might be warned. God is so kind. There are here in these 18 verses five separate categories of suffering and perplexity that that Jeremiah holds before us. And one of the things that I want you to ask yourself as we go through each one of these categories is, has there ever been a moment in my life that I've felt this? Has there ever been a moment where I've left the Word of God and I have begun to sin against the, the God of the heavens and in response to that, God in His kindness has chastened me and I have felt in whatever small measure these same pains. Because if you can say that's a reality, then you know that God is at work in your life. And it seems somewhat odd, some of the things we're going to talk about. In fact, I think Jeremiah here is describing what he feels. It's not necessarily that God has actually abandoned him or the other things that we're going to talk about, but he feels all of these realities because of the sin of the nation. The first thing that he holds before us is that God is against him. The people were, again, slow, and we've talked about this, to really grasp the reality that God was at work in chastening them. But, but Jeremiah brings that before them in verse 1 of chapter 2. How, how the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. And then in verse 8, again reminding that the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out the measure of the line. He did not restrain His hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. And in verse 17, the Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word. That this suffering was coming to the people of God because God, in fact, is the one acting here. He is the one who is against the the rebellion of His people in walking away from him. It's interesting how often people uh, cannot see that God is chastening them. Friends, the number of times in the past 10 years of my ministry, even here, that I've prayed with family members whose family are leaving uh, the, the church or walking with the Lord altogether, or the number of times that I've had other pastor friends call me and tell me of, of just stories that are visceral of of husbands or wives leaving their spouses for foolish reasons, and then the the fallout of those foolish things in their life being misery and pain, and yet the individual that is causing their, their own difficulty in their life and God coming against them to chastise them can't even see that it is in fact their actions that bring on that suffering. And I think that far too often we're not willing to say 
brother or sister in Christ, if you are suffering, might it be that you have sinned? Might it be that you are walking in a way that is not pleasing to God? And I think two things that we see here in the life of Jeremiah are really prerequisites to be able to see rightly the, cha- the chastening hand of God. And that is one, a pure conscience and a sensitive heart. Jeremiah in, in, his, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 21 says, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. He's saying there, my conscience is pure before the Lord. I know that God deals with sin. And He's sensitive to the reality that His people are suffering in light of their sin. And so it wounds Him. It grieves Him. And so we come to verse 1 of chapter 3 and we really sense the heart of Jeremiah as he cries out acknowledging the reality of where this suffering has come from. I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. God does chasten those whom He loves. Beloved, our hardest moments are when we have sinned against the Lord and when we persist in that sin. And we must remember that when then when God is angry and He's dealing with His people, it is not a hatred to destroy the way our adversaries would come against us, but rather it is love to correct and bring us back home. I remind you again with words from Hebrews chapter 12 that deals with this topic at length. Besides this, starting in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 12. Besides this, when we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for good that we might share His holiness. Beloved, if that's all that we learned this morning, what a joy that our God chastens us not just for some petty thing, but that we might be holy. And it goes on for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight your, the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The heavy hand of chastisement, the rod of God's wrath, comes against His people, not for their destruction, but Hebrews tells us, for our healing. The Lord brings us low that we might repent and believe. And again, this is part of God's pastoral work in our lives. Micah chapter 7, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. And again, those words from, from Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When we come to the end of our life, beloved, we will understand that the rod and staff of God, no matter how hard they laid upon us, We're not for our destruction, but for our deliverance. So first, Jeremiah here holds out the reality that God is against the nation, not for their destruction, but that they might come to repentance. Secondly, he appears as their enemy in verses 2 through 6. Jeremiah here says he is walking in darkness. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light, surely against me. He turns His hand again and again the whole day. Jeremiah here pictures the lack of comfort, the lack of certainty. He recalls his own time uh, in in being in a prison cell. Again, I think his own experience throughout the, the time that he has been prophet is interwoven here with what he's crying out for on behalf of the people. And, and so he's remembering those days where he was thrown into the, into the dungeon. Nothing is so depressing, so oppressive, so hopeless as dealing with darkness. And and Jeremiah understood that. And the nation has been brought to a point where they understand it. If you've ever read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, one thing that is noted often of John Bunyan, Bunyan having spent time in in jail for, um, for his 
preaching the true gospel in opposition to religious nonsense in his day, um, it's often acknowledged that you can smell the dungeon in Bunyan's writing. And I think that's part of what is going on here with Jeremiah is that as he begins to point to the reality of the darkness in the nation, he also acknowledges the darkness in his own life in a real physical sense when he was cast into prison. Verse, verse th- uh, 3, in, in darkness he has turned against me. In, in, in the darkness, the hardest thing to battle, I think that Jeremiah is leading us to, is, is beginning to believe that God is ultimately against you for destruction. That God is ultimately allowing everything to, to come against you so that ultimately He would undo you. But we must remember with the psalmist that God's past faithfulness must be remembered in dark nights that we would repent and look to Him knowing that He is the only One who can ultimately bring us out of that darkness. And here, look at the emphasis in verse 3. Again, he feels like God is against him. God appears as an enemy. And it's not occasional. It's again and again. And he would say again and again. I'm looking everywhere around me. And it seems like God has beset me with nothing but judgment. He continually is against me. And we must Remember that in the providence of God, not one blow more will come into our life than that which is intended to bring us to the point of maturity in Christ. So if we are in a season of life and we look again and again and again and again and God is chastening us over and over and over and it's seemingly in our senses we come to the conclusion that God, You must be against me. We must counter that in our thinking and remember with all of the saints of old, that's not true. It's just that in the mercy of God, I need to be chastened again and again and again and again. Every single blow of the rod of God's wrath doesn't come against me for my destruction, but for my deliverance. What a joy it is to know in the midst of a dark night where God feels as though He is your enemy, that He is in fact your Redeemer. I think we have to see broadly in the New Testament, two things about suffering, and that is the perspective and the purpose of why God allows suffering into our lives. Romans 8 verse 18 tells us, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so what do we derive from that verse, but that we must have the right perspective of our suffering? We, might, we must take the long view of what it is to experience suffering in this life and know that the greatest suffering that would befall us, and none of us have ever experienced what the nation of Israel has in Lamentations, the greatest evil that would befall us is ultimately working in us a weight of glory that isn't even comparable to the suffering now. So when you go through big suffering. You can rejoice knowing there's greater glory ahead. And that doesn't mean that we have the cheesy, you know, kind of Christianese, and I find this in different ways. My wife died, and boy, the Lord is just great. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to acknowledge the suffering, but in the midst of that suffering, don't give way to unbelief. Hold on to the reality that God is working in you and others around you something far more than you could ever imagine. His uh, the, the perspective here from Paul is right, and I believe it's ultimately what Jeremiah holds on to as well. Also, the purpose we find in the New Testament in James' writing, And we're told it's to develop our character in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
That glory that Paul talks about that is before us is not just kind of some good celestial pinata prize that, 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 oh, it's great, and then we're going to pivot from it. No, this is a kind of molding us into the image of God that when we stand in that final day, we will be able... Right now, it's hard to agree with James, isn't it? It's hard to yes and amen our brother. It's hard to... I felt like I was lacking nothing before this trial. But friends, take the long view, have the right perspective, and when you land there, you will know and say yes and amen to I. Friends, there's going to be a day when we stand before the Lord and we say, oh, I lack nothing. He's given me everything that I need, and that trial was part of His grace in my life. He also points to the reality in this seeming of of God being against him as his enemy that his body is afflicted in verse 4. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Beloved, grief has visceral effects. Being in a position in our lives where we are suffering causes physical Maladies. It causes us to grow old before our time. It causes gray hair and it causes us to be exhausted. Sometimes the, I think one of the wisest things that we can do for friends who are going through suffering is not necessarily to show up and pretend that we know everything that God is doing, but just meet the physical needs that we can in loving for them well physically. Because the wrath of God, the rod of God, God, even when it is set against our souls, has impact in our flesh. He also says that He is surrounded by hardship and bitterness at every point. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has in His mind the besieging of the city of Jerusalem, but He realizes that the secondary reality of that physical besiegement is that God has set Him uh, with bitterness and tribulation, with difficulty. It seems on every side there is nothing but sin and great waste. But again, we must remember that this is only momentary. And then finally, he hits rock bottom, feeling as though he were dead in verse 6. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Now, I don't think this is merely dramatics. He, he felt as though, like a dead man, there was nothing he could do. Beloved, has God not brought you to a point like that in your own life? That you realize that you are not capable of bringing yourself out of that situation? I believe if we understand our salvation well, we will understand that we were all dead men. And that there was nothing we could do to bring ourselves out of the grave of our own spiritual depravity. But what a joy it is this morning to know that our God in moments where we feel our own deadness, He is not dead. He lives, He rules, and He reigns. And when we come to the point that we feel the weight of our own depravity and our own sin, God is not far off because the reason that we feel that is that God might change it. That God might heal us. Calvin here comments, it's not possible sufficiently to set forth the greatness of the sorrow which the faithful feel when terrified by the wrath of Almighty God. And Jeremiah here personifies what he feels for God's people. That we are a nation. Beloved, there is a connection here, I think, in the text of what Jeremiah is seeing as the prophet of God looking at the people of God having left the Word of God. And what he sees is we are a dead people. We no longer love the Word of God. We no longer cherish the Word of God. One of the, if you were here on Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday night and, and watched the video on revival, what a gift that was. And to hear of how saints long ago would cry out that you can take our children, you can take our jobs, you can take our health, you can take anything you want, but do not take your word from us, Lord. And yet, seemingly, don't we live in a day and age where if we stood and we looked out upon our nation, it is full of dead religion that is not imbibed by the Word of God. So here, he feels that he knows that God is against in a chastening fashion. He also realizes that it feels as though God were the enemy. 
that God were that instrument around them to crush them. And in some sense, that's a reality. But the outworking of that is that they might one day lack nothing. He also, in verses 7-9, through deals with the reality of feeling hemmed in. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call for help, He shuts out my prayer. He blocks my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He feels weighed down by chains. He feels trapped by walls. The Assyrians here, this is an imagery of what Assyrian torment was when they would besiege and take a city. They would take some of the captives alive and they would, they would stick them in crevices of the wall and then they would wall around them so that nobody could hear them. And, and those individuals who were taken captive and covered over by, by stone walls would ultimately die in the darkness. And no doubt Jeremiah had seen this physically as Jerusalem had been conquered in his own day. And what he's saying is what the nation is experiencing in an outward physical reality I know is true spiritually. It seems as though God were walling us off so that we could no longer cry out. Look what he says in verse 8. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has walled me off. He's not listening. It's not that He's prevented me from crying out. It's that when I cry, He seemingly doesn't hear me. And so everything seems then, in verse 9, crooked. Everything seems crooked. Beloved, this morning I don't have to illustrate for more than two seconds the reality that this is the truth in our day. We have women who stand in the pulpit proclaiming nonsensical, liberal, feel-good ideology, and then when it issues forth, and when all of this started, there was, I remember, because it was in the 90s when I was, it didn't start there, but when I started, that's the point that I began re- realizing it. And, and pastors would cry out against liberal theologies and, and the kind of hijacking of the church for the agenda of a few in our country, we shouldn't be surprised that here 30 years later, those same people are applauding the mutilation of children. Those are ways that are crooked. We shouldn't be surprised that when people cry out to God in our nation, having accepted those doctrines, walking away from the reality of the Word of God and quite frankly, the plain sense of creation... That God seemingly doesn't hear our prayers. We should not be surprised that when we look out into our nation and we see every perversion alive and well, we must only go back and see where did we walk away from the Word of God. Because providentially, this is what happens every time that we do. Every time. So he felt hemmed in. And and doesn't it feel in our day at times like we are hemmed in as well? That everywhere we turn, there is merely debauchery and running from the Word of God. In that, I want us to have hope. Uh, As soon as I read verse 9, every crooked way, my mind immediately bounced back and has gone through uh, lamentations to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13, where Solomon says, Who can make straight that which God has made crooked? And the idea there is that God puts crooked things into our life individually and nationally. Why? So that we might be confronted in those things and turn back to Him. Beloved, we can interact with the debauchery and the foolishness in our own day and call people to repent. That's what God would have us to do. He also says in this passage that he feels as though there is no help. Verses 10 through 15. And here, there seemingly, as he feels like God has hemmed him in and walled him around, there is no escape from this trouble. It's just the soup that he lives in. But now the focus turns not merely from just a general trouble, but he focuses on the one who wields these. Weapons. 
He he acknowledges again, having started in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. And then in verse 10, he really starts to lean in that the instrument is nothing other than God Himself seeking to chasten His people. Now the the focus is arrayed, uh, is on the weapons of God arrayed against people. In in verses 10 and 11, he is like an animal ready to tear the nation to pieces. He says, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion hiding. He turned me aside. My, he turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. And you might think, well, that's way too. That's not the God I understand. Hosea chapter five verse fourteen. This is what God says Himself: For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Um, and like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. In verses 12 and 13, he looks like a, a, a hunter. He, he says, He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his Quiver, Matthew Henry says, God has many arrows in His quiver and they fly swiftly and pierce sharply. And what we need to know is this. God is not like every hunter that we've ever met hoping to hit His target. God hits His target every time. When He strikes us as His people, He does so exactly in the way that He needs to to bring about the response that He wants to elicit in our growing in holiness and righteousness and repentance. And then in verses 12 through 15, or excuse me, 14 and 15, we see what we've heard all through the first two chapters, and that is that the nation is living in derision. I have become the laughingstock of all of the people, the object of their taunts all the day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has saddened me with wormwood. There is bitterness in what they are experiencing as the outworking of of their sin. And and part of, I think, poetically what we see in the the use of wormwood and being the laughingstock is, friends, isn't it interesting the two sides of sin? The world on one hand will tell us, come on, it tastes great. And they'll applaud us as we live in debauchery. The the world is applauding the church today. The world is looking at so many churches that are giving different... I didn't think we would ever... I would live to see this level of stupidity. But the... The um, new young pastor of Saddleback Church, the church that Rick Warren... um, started in California, was asked recently, if a homosexual couple were to come to faith and repentance, and friends, every one of us here should want homosexual couples to repent and believe. We're not against them, uh, but we want them to hold their bodies in a way that honors the Lord, and ultimately we want them to have a genuine relationship with the living God. Yes and amen. But the question was, if that were to happen, would you encourage them to divorce or not? And his response was, well, you know, the Bible doesn't clearly speak to that. Really? The Bible speaks so clearly to that entire issue. You have lived a life of debauchery. Repent and believe. Turn to Christ and live and walk away from your sin. Uh, That's so clear. But the, the world in sharing this is... That the world will applaud the church all the way that she wants to go in sin. And at some level, the church will reap earthly fruit and it may taste good for a season. But in the final analysis, when the shoe really falls, what we reap from our sin is not something that's delightful and the applause of the world, but we receive the mockery and the derision from the world and we are left with what tastes bitter. And that's what, that's what Jeremiah is sharing here. And he feels like there is no hope. And then finally, his hope in the Lord is deferred in verses 16 through 18. He has made my teeth to grind on gravel and made me cower in the ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten the happiness, what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. 
so has my hope from the Lord. The pictures here go from bad to worse. God's wrath is real. It is powerful. It brings us to a point where we... We sense the reality that God is chasing us. It feels like He's our enemy. He hems us in on every side. Beloved, there's nowhere you can go. If you are genuinely a Christian, God holds your lot and you can't escape from Him. We have a great illustration of those verses and that reality of God hemming us in in Jonah. Because Jonah had that whole idea. I don't want to do what God tells me. I don't want to be an obedient believer. So I will just leave Israel. I'll just get on a boat. Because if I'm not in Israel, God won't be able to deal with me. And then we have the whale. And what he's teaching us in that is God is sovereign over everything. Every ounce of creation. You want to live a sinful life in debauchery apart from the Word of God. Good luck. He's going to envelop you in His wrath if you in fact belong to Him. There is then moments where we feel like we have no help when we've come against God. And then we feel like we have no hope. But the problem is never, mark it down, never to be found in God. It is always in us. And then some of you might ask, well, why then do we see the church seemingly financially, outwardly, in so many earthly senses, flourishing and not being chastened by God. My argument would be this. If a group of people can gather on Sunday morning apart from the Word of God and bring in millions of dollars of offering, and they can seemingly have great relationships, And they can grow in how to use their finances and do a whole lot of worldly things on their own. But the chastening hand of God never comes against them because they've left the Word of God. They never feel like He's against them. They never feel like He's an enemy. They never feel like they're hemmed in. They never feel like there's no help. And they never feel that their hope is deferred. The reason is because that group of people doesn't belong to the Lord. And I don't say that with any degree of joy. It's, friends, I was in the church this week where the Word of God was slightly opened and the pastor was an absolute idiot with how he handled it. And I, I, listen, ten years in, I will take the moniker of idiot too. In so many ways, there's no pride in that. It's just that we should have reverence for the Word of God. God's wrath is real and powerful. Here in verse 16, there's this metaphor of of, He made my teeth to grind on gravel. He made me cower in ashes. And the metaphor here pictures the reality that someone who eats bread that has gravel inside of it. Because that was what was going on in the nation at that point. And inwardly, you can feel the discomfort of chewing on gravel. And Jeremiah is saying, though outwardly we see all of the destruction, I feel inwardly the reality of our hope seemingly being disconnected from the Lord. And verse 17, all His peace and prosperity had gone. The nation of Israel are people, you know how they greet one another at this time? Shalom, shalom. Peace. Be whole. Be healthy. Be, be, be well. And here... What, the, what Jeremiah is saying is, I no longer feel those things. That has been taken away. One of the greatest things that God can do to you, beloved, if you are living in sin, is to take away your false sense of inward peace. He disturbs you that He might sanctify you. Verse 18, So because of these inward trials, so I say my endurance has perished and my hope So has my hope from the Lord. This is how he feels. He feels as though he has no hope. And friends, I think this closely mirrors what we learned all throughout John. And that is, we we can't lose our salvation, but we certainly can lose assurance as we live in sin. Sin obscures the love of God. It obscures the reality of the hope that we have in God. And so verse 18 seems so bleak. But what's interesting, if you look at the trajectory of all that we have dealt with to this point, it's weighty, isn't it? 
Have you ever heard a sermon on, on Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 18? Like, this isn't a text that. The first time I ever heard of expositional preaching, my first thought, if I'm honest in my flesh, was I've read the Bible. There's some things in there that how do you preach that on a Sunday morning? You do it. Sometimes not well, but these are hard truths, are they not? That's the whole point. But hear the joy in verse 18. You could come to verse 18 and say, My endurance has perished, so, my hope, so has my hope from the Lord, and just say, Well, he's lost all hope. That stinks. But what is really happening here is this is the first time it's significant. Pay attention to this. This man who seemingly is hopeless, who acknowledges God is against the nation and it feels like he's their enemy, and there is this feeling of being hemmed in. All of these hopeless feelings. There's no help. He finally turns his gaze to the Lord. He acknowledges by name that his hopelessness is connected to the Lord. So what is the inverse reality? It's that the only hope that he ever had was not that the nation flourished and that the walls were built and that the economy was doing well and that the children sang in the streets and all of the joyful things that he remembered. What he's getting to in verse 18 is he's acknowledging the reality that we can have all of those things, but if we're not connected to the Lord and to His Word, we have nothing. And so though I feel as though my hope has wasted away, and beloved, I feel that in my bones too. I feel the weight of looking over church history and the reality of who we once were as a country. And I'm not saying we are perfect, so don't write me letters about our past being imperfect. We will join the ranks of imperfect nation like every other nation on the face of the planet. But there was a time when, when the gospel at least had some infiltration into the culture. And at times it feels hopeless in our day, doesn't it? But let that hopelessness inform you about where your hope comes from. It doesn't come from a church movement. It doesn't come from a pastor. It doesn't even come from what we remember of the past. It comes in the name of the Lord. It comes from God. You see, what I think ultimately he's getting to there is remembering what the... What the writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. You see, friends, willful sin leads God's people to feel as though God is against them, as He is their ultimate enemy, as He's hemming them in, leaving them without help or hope. And the language here is not too strong. Living in our sin, beloved, brings us to the realities of verse 3 that we become people who have seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. And quickly, there are three realities that we can note in life in light of that. And we've already really touched upon them, but verse 8, that God seemingly closes the door of prayer. Look again at verse 8 with me. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts, the door, shuts out my prayer. What ultimately I think that He's meditating on there could be Psalm 66 verse 18 where the psalmist acknowledges, if I had cherished my sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Friends, there are many things that we can do to hinder our prayers if we don't come in the right heart attitude and, and the right posture uh, of humility and through the, the name of Christ. And, and there's a litany of, of, of theological nuances to, that hinder prayer in the life of a believer. But nothing hinders your prayer more than sin that you harbor in your heart. It's why. Friends, I don't mean to be controversial. I really don't. And, and, and what I have attempted to lead you in, this is 10 years into my ministry here, and, and I've thought a lot over the past several weeks about my failures, my mistakes, my own foolishness, and there's a lot to think on there. But I don't want to merely lead you. The, the, the meaning of the word pastor is to bring you into a place of peace and comfort and wellness with the Lord. 
Having a time of confession is not about moving us in the direction of someone's tradition. Having a time of confession is the reality that every one of us are so prone to harbor sin in our hearts. And then if we would come in harboring sin and not just take a moment to deal with that sin, we can all leave feeling as though the worship service met every one of our little boxes on our sheet. But if it did not rise to the level of genuinely honoring the Lord, then all that we have done is vanity. Confession stands at the forefront of our time together, not as an acknowledgement of a theological tradition, but as an acknowledgement of who we are. People who far too often harbor sin in our own hearts. And beloved, I want you to have a a chance between you and the Lord to deal with that. Secondly, uh, it can feel as though our paths are crooked in verse 9. He has made my paths crooked. It is just with, just with God to make those who walk in the crooked paths of sin, crossing God's law, walk in the crooked paths of affliction and crossing their designs. We think about that in more modern terms. We could say that if we walk in the crooked paths of sin, we need not be surprised when we end up in the crooked paths of sorrow from which we will be powerless in and of ourselves to escape. Part of what we sang this morning uh, was so helpful in this vein that, 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 friends, often what God is doing is He is allowing us to go through suffering that we might feel the inward realities of the evil in our own heart. He, it, we have a straight line in our mind. If our lives are right with the Lord, then our path will look... And whatever that line is. And we could all write that narrative. If I had the life that I think the Lord would have me to have, here is what it would look like. But the Lord often allows us to walk in crookedness, not because we're deserving of the straight path, but because there's still crookedness left in us. And He's revealing that very thing to us. Finally, the reality of the removal of peace. My soul is bereft of peace, is what He says in verse 17. Peace with God is a reality for the Christian. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, contrary to some Armenian theology that would teach you that that peace with God can be stripped away if you screw up too much, that's an absolute lie. We are ju- Because what that does is it doesn't say something about us. It says something about the efficacy of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He justifies a sinner, He does it once and for all. But we can feel as though we've lost that peace. Our sin will torment us. We will be grieved inwardly. Friends, do you know, as I think through the application of this to our own day and age, one of the things that I lament, and that's part of the purpose of Lamentations, obviously, is to teach us how to lament, to to grieve over the, the foolishness in our own generation, in our own lives, and in the life of the nation. And I would never make the argument that America was the bastion of Christianity and boy, Christian thought would never have endured had America never shown up. Like, I I don't have that perspective. But I do think that one of the things that humanistic, radical, theologically liberal ideologies are doing to our nation is it's robbing us of our peace and our joy. And it's this weird cycle of constantly thinking that the world will have the idea and the solution to fix our lack of peace and our lack of joy and the trouble that we have in our schools and our homes and in our churches. And so we go to the next paradigm. You'll hear this all the time in the culture. Well, there's a paradigm shift. Yeah, because the other one didn't work and so man came up with a new one. 
You know, when we don't have to have a paradigm shift, when we live on this Word. And we can be molded and reformed not by a standard that's constantly all over the place, but we can acknowledge that we are the ones who are all over the place and His Word has never changed. And isn't it a joy, even in the horrors of God's wrath, that verse 17 of chapter 2 stands, the Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word. Any theology that would bring you to a point to say, God has done all He can do. Now this is what you need to do. Slam the door on that garbage and run. Because God has not done all that He can do. If He had, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us we'd be in glory at this moment. We yet persist in this world because He's not finished redeeming the souls of the men and women that He intends. And He will do it in His own time and for His own glory. So if we find ourselves in a generation where it seems like God is against us, and it seems like He is our enemy, and it seems like it's interesting how often liberals say, well, God's against us. I think that's for a different reason. But anyway, if it feels like we have no help and we have no hope, then we have the answer to the question of what's going on. And the answer is this. We've left the Word of God. And we must return So I want us to consider our own suffering then. If you're like me, you look at the suffering of this city uh, of Jerusalem and and you have the sense of pitying these people and and you feel some of the sense in our own day. And how many times have have we left the Word of God and and we have experienced chastisement, but beloved, never to the severity of, of what... Jeremiah and the nation of Israel are experiencing here for our edification. So how do we digest all of this? What is God doing in our lives when we can, when we can relate to verses 1-18 through 18 of Lamentations chapter 3? What, it, what is it that God is up to? Well, I, I want to encourage you by comparing the city of Jerusalem with another city that another man spoke of, and that is the city of God that Augustine spoke of. And as he begins to end that opus of his huge volume, he reminds us that in our mind, we don't yet know what God is doing. We can't fathom. In fact, I was laughing out loud yesterday as we were driving, and, and Sarah's like, what are, you, what are you laughing at? And I'm like, well, I'm going to have to read you the context, but it's really kind of theology, humor. Okay, fine, I'll read it to you. And basically it's this. That Augustine says, now I'm going to tell you what heaven's going to be like. But I have to make an admission that I really don't know what I'm talking about because there's this one problem. I've never been dead. I've never actually experienced it. I don't actually know all of the glories that await us. And so then he leans into it just kind of, and it's so annoying when, when great theologians do this. They just kind of go, this is just kind of what I think. And it's glorious. But he reminds is a capstone to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. When we go through suffering, don't judge that suffering too quickly. That's one thing that you need to know. Don't look at the sufferings of this present time and say, I know for sure what God is doing because I believe this. When we stand before Him in glory, we are going to have that, oh, moment of God was doing so much more than I could ever think. So then I want to point out, and I'll be done, that the outcome of our suffering. And this is where I find Augustine helpful. He speaks of how one day we will remember the evil that has befallen us, our suffering here. And he says there are two categories of how we relate to our suffering. One is we know it cognitively. We, we remember that the event of whatever that suffering, and in this moment, think about the moment in your life where you suffered uh, uh, something very tragic and very difficult. And you know about it in your mind. But right now, as you're doing that, as you're remembering that suffering, you can't help but disconnect it 
from how you feel about what happened in that moment. There is something interconnected in us here and now that we must, in our knowing, also feel what our suffering is like. And so he goes on to say that when we finally get to glory, we will more or less be like physicians, doctors who roam the halls and they know every illness and and they know all of the different biological realities of those illnesses and all of the nuances of the treatments and they are cognitively aware of that problem in the hospital room, that particular illness. But the physician himself doesn't feel the pain. Only the patient does. And in glory, we will be like those physicians. We will remember the things that we suffered, but we will no longer have the feelings pinning us in in that particular suffering. He writes, The saints will have no memory of past evil. They will be set free from them all. And they will be completely deleted from their feelings. Yet the power of the knowledge will be so great in the saints that they will be aware not only of their own past suffering, but also of the everlasting misery of the damned. For if they were not to know that they had been miserable, how could they, as the psalm says, forever sing the mercies of God? Nothing will, be, nothing will give more joy to that city than the, this song of glory of the grace of Christ by whose blood we have been redeemed. What he is saying here is ultimately, we believe with all of the saints that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose. But how? And I believe what Augustine is teaching us is the how. That all of the chastening of God has its purpose. That when we run from God, we find ourselves feeling hemmed in like God God is against us as an enemy without hope or help. But we need to remember He is merely doing what He said He would do in verse 17. He is carrying out His Word. He is building for Himself a people that are peculiar to worship Him in His glory forever. He will bring us home. And there what Augustine teaches us is that we will no longer feel the weight of our suffering. We will know its reality. We will remember all of the pain And that He alone was the one who used that pain to set us free according to His Word. That knowledge will no longer have the sting of feeling the suffering, but it will be in fact the foundation, the source for all of our worship. What is God doing in your life when you suffer? He is brick by brick by brick building the platform of heaven by which we will cry out day and night for all of eternity. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is building a city that will never be moved. We will be brought from a position of being able to sin to then being translated into a position where we will never sin. And we will always rejoice. All of the powers of hell could come against heaven. And we won't be moved because we will remember the Lamb that was slain allowed us to endure suffering that He would bring us safely and finally home. I want you to think about this city of destruction that we've walked in for the past several weeks. And I want you to hear how everything has changed in the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. We've looked at a people who had forgotten the Word. We had looked at a people who had been brought to ruin. We had looked looked at a city and a people destroyed. But there it is not so because we are told this. Verses 1-5 through and I'm done. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new and think about this this final statement that he says in light of the leaving of the word of God in lamentations and in light of the glories of heaven he says write this down for these words are trustworthy and true our God is true and faithful in all that he does even our worst suffering. Might we glorify Him eternally for that reality. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today so thankful for these words, so thankful to know that in times that we do realize You are against us and chastening us, it's not for our destruction. When we feel as though You are our enemy, that You're hemming us in and that we have no help or no hope, might Your Word dash all of those realities and might we look back to Your Word and be, con- be affirmed in the reality that those You justify, You also sanctify. And those You sanctify by Your grace and Your good work alone, You will one day bring to glory. And might we find ourselves there soon, worshiping You in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, Amen. And we'll sing, It is well with